I've never heard of a therapy group for grumblers. Alcoholics Anonymous, pretty well-known program, but I don't think there is such a thing as Grumblers Anonymous anywhere. Support groups for complainers are not widely advertised. I wonder why, what's the reason for that? Is the reason that there's not a lot of grumbling and complaining and belly aching that goes on in our society? No, I think the reason certainly is far more that it's so pervasive as to hardly be noticed. It's just a way of life. Or maybe more significantly, who on earth sees grumbling and complaining as a problem in the first place? Belly aching is no crime. Complaining causes no harm. Grumbling is no sin, to be sure, our world would say. We have to grant, of course, that there's a proper way to air our concerns. And some of them must be aired at times. At times we must object to circumstances, to unjust laws and policies, to corrupt leaders, to harmful ideas. It's not that we are never to push back against our world. But I'd like us to think about this uniquely as a church today. Think about it. For the born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, grumbling takes on very different dimensions. When you serve a sovereign God, when you serve a God who providentially works all things together for our good and for His glory, complaining and grumbling become idolatrous rebellion against Him just in case there's any question of where I stand on that issue. That's pretty bold, isn't it? It's really idolatry. It's really a rebellion against the Lord when we complain and grumble and bellyache. If we are God's children, think of it, if we really are His children, adopted, redeemed, secured for our eternal home with Him, if this is true, then grumbling is in some measure a declaration that God is not good. This means then that grumbling is never really about grumbling. Grumbling is really about God. And it reveals the relationship that we have with Him. It reveals the relationship that I have with Him. It's not merely distasteful personality. Complaining reveals that I'm not seeing the wonder of redemption or the glory of my final home. That I'm not walking in intimacy with Christ as I ought in this moment. I don't think this is overthinking the matter picking at some small thing that's just human. I think it's a conclusion that flows to us in Christ through the lens of the grumblers in the wilderness as they make their way to the promised land in Numbers chapter 11. The first segment of this chapter, we see the sojourners complaining against God Verse 1, they grumble about their misfortunes. In the first three verses, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now wait a minute. Seriously. Their misfortunes. The Hebrew word ra we'll find again and again here. It's the, the, the evil that is being done to them. 
This is what gets them to grumble. God has delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage by means of ten miraculous signs, plagues that have wrecked Egypt and have left Israel untouched. Israel has recently been pinned against the Red Sea with the most powerful army on the planet coming at them. And God intervenes. His glory cloud casting a deep darkness over the Egyptian army and providing light through the night while He splits the Red Sea for Israel's exodus and deliverance. Drowning the powerful Egyptian army the next day. Providing manna from heaven. Food for Israel to eat in the wilderness. He provided His law to help Israel live wisely on Mount Sinai. And then there was Exodus 32 and the golden calf incident where Israel turns to false gods, to, turns away from the worship of the true God. They should have been destroyed with all that God has done. They should have been destroyed. But God forgives, restores, strengthens the nation, comes to dwell among them now here over the tabernacle, leading them on in procession to the land that He has promised. A land flowing with milk and honey. That is a a land that produces wonderful things. And is a rich land that has been theirs for hundreds of years, but now to be realized. And what are they saying? It's not good. Our evil that we are experiencing. And they grumble and complain in the hearing of the Lord. When the Lord heard it, verse 1, His anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. We're not told what this looks like. Perhaps the fire of God's judgment torched the shrubbery at the outskirts of the camp. Perhaps it was worse than that and took some of the people. We're not told, but in any event, God legitimately, even graciously sends a warning shot. I'm still here. You're talking about me, the one who has shepherded you through all of this. And you're talking about your misfortune. The message is received, verse 2, the people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. A place name meaning burning that reminds them of what God has done to stop the complaining in this moment. It's foreshadowing, a brief cameo as it's called, in what will become a string of similar rebellions on the part of Israel and similar place names because of the judgment of God. Unfortunately then, a more detailed and very similar account follows at another location along the route to the promised land. We might divide this up by these two scenes. I've chosen to divide it up differently just to grab here under this outlawing point the complaining against the Lord. They grumble about their misfortunes, but as we continue, they grumble now about their diet. Verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. I've got to stop there just for a moment. The rabble... These are the troublemakers who were not Israelites, but they joined God's people when they left Egypt. 
And they are a source of much trouble as they do not see things from God's perspective and they tempt Israel to listen to their thinking. They didn't know the Lord. They did not follow His ways. They were just among His people. And they became a source of spiritual discouragement to the sojourning people. Here they yield to a, to a craving that is idolatrous. Rather than correct the rebels... Many of the Israelites look around and say, man, they got a point. It's not a lot of fun out here. There's not a lot of food. The diet is really, really limited. And they begin to listen to what they're saying. Oh, that we had meat to eat, verse 4. The people of Israel also weeping, that is, wailing for their problems. Again, and saying, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. You could just hear their, their lust spill out of their soul. Remember those days. Remember that meal. Remember this wonderful food. And it was wonderful. But now. Verse 6. Where's the but now point? Right to God. Who led us here. But now. Verse 6. Our strength is dried up. It's a word that might point to dehydration, which was probably the case. But we are weakened here in this heat, in this place where there are no rivers producing fish, and there's no irrigation producing good crops. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. This manna. I think verses 7 through 9 are inserted in order to assure us that manna was not a bad menu item. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like that of a delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So this flaky resin-like substance could be maybe fried like a donut. It could be baked like bread. It could be boiled like dumplings. It was tasty. Manna was God's daily mercy for a nation that had no home but a massive number of people to get from the Sinai Peninsula northward to the Promised Land. This wasn't an infinitely long journey. This was a short period of time to get there, and this manna continued to sustain them in the wilderness like nothing else could. I mean, on some level, can you not sympathize with Israel's concern? Who wants to eat the same thing day after day? They did have livestock. There certainly was some meat, Probably not a lot of it, but certainly no fish. But what is the problem? The problem, I think verses 7 to 9 are saying, is not God's provision. And certainly we can conclude that. The problem is not the manna. If I could put it this way, the problem is that Israel is looking in her rearview mirror, not through the windshield. She's looking back to what was, not to what is to come. What God has promised and where God is taking her. It's really an all-out rebellion. It's sedition. 
They chose to deal with this trial by looking back to what they once enjoyed in Egypt. There was far better food awaiting them forward in Canaan. Their grumbling then was nothing short of a rebellion, a lack of patient faith in God's promises. Now maybe banging around in your head is a picture of this in your own life. A picture of this in your family, but can I take us back to the traditional family road trip? I mean, you could fill in the blanks pretty easily here, can't you? The parents tell the kids in the back seat that we're going to have, it's a long trip, it's a day long, and we're going to eat at a restaurant when we start out, and we're going to eat at a restaurant at the end. Breakfast and dinner at the end. And I want to tell you, that this restaurant at the end of our trip is the best restaurant you've ever eaten in. You will absolutely love it. You fill in your blanks of what that is. Maybe Golden Corral. (laughs) Maybe it's something fancier. But this is the best food that you've ever had. It's going to be a long day, so here we go. And what happens? You can fill it in. Eh, The breakfast was okay, but we're on the road and we're excited about the trip and we're traveling along. And then what comes from the back seat? Or seats. Are we there yet? Are we close? Are we getting there? And some snacks are provided. And that seems to satisfy for a short time. But then as we get further, are we there yet? Are we close yet? No, not yet. Not yet. Would you like some more snacks? No, we hate those things. We're tired of those snacks. Maybe they're crackers. No, had enough. We don't want that. Let's go back to the first restaurant and get some food. We need a decent meal. What's going on there? Parents are saying, listen, we're almost there. What's better is ahead. What's in the past is not as good. Press on, endure, and this is all going to work out really well. We see that world. We see what they're doing. We see their immaturity. And it reveals to us some truths about grumbling that we need to take in as we act the same way in our relationship with the Lord often. Number one, God does not like grumbling. Can we say that fairly? As He licks up the edges of Israel's camp with fire to make this point. He doesn't like grumbling. And he does not look kindly upon complainers. Let's stake that point. Secondly, grumbling is often fueled by sanitized memories. Grumblers like to look backwards at what once was. A past day when things were better. And there's sort of a sleight of hand that goes on there. Nowhere does the world look the way that we want it to. Nowhere do things go just like we desire, but we can pretend they once did because nobody's living back there. And so through this sleight of hand, days were better in the past. Things were better back there. And their complaining spirit usually then airbrushes the picture, making it way better than it actually was. Sanitized memories is what's going on here in Egypt. What's the reality 
about what they left behind in Egypt. Here it is in Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God, save us! And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. They are desperately crying to God for rescue in Egypt. Now a year later, where are they? Boy, things were good back there. Remember that fish frying up? And those melons and and the leeks and the garlic in that fit, oh, it was so good back then. And they were making bricks for Pharaoh, driven by the lash, enslaved, children destroyed at birth, crying out to God for delivery. But oh, those were the good days as we airbrush the memory. Thirdly, grumbling is contagious. This we also learn. God hates it. It likes to sanitize memories and look to the past through the sleight of hand is better. And thirdly, grumbling is contagious and the contagion is often passed on by people weak in their faith in God, if not lacking it. And I think we need to simply know this. Where grumbling is, where we find grumbling, it is rooted in unbelief and it is rooted in self-serving idolatries. Again, I'm not saying that every time someone objects or issues a concern, or as we have here in Exodus 2, speaks out of grievance and pain, that this is wrong. This is not what grumbling is. But grumbling is rooted in unbelief and self-serving idolatries, and we need to refuse to be drug along into it. We need to have the capacities to discern when someone is grumbling against God and not be drawn into the vortex of their grumbling, of their complaining. So we pause here and we're dumbfounded by Israel's rebellion. But for us, it is even more significant what we have seen and where we have been. We have seen through faith, the crucifixion of Christ. We have seen there the cost that was paid to deliver us from sin. We have seen through the eye of faith the resurrection of Jesus. We have been seated with Him in eternity. We who have come to faith and trust in Him. We are in Him, seated in that place, knowing that as pilgrims we are headed to this eternal land that Christ has purchased for us as His children. We've seen much more than they have. And our grumbling is no better. May we see it in that light. The Israelites complain against God. At verse 10, we see Moses that complaining to God. Verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, imagine. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. 
God hears Israel bewail her circumstances. He has delivered them from Egypt, but as He stalks through the paths between the tents, He hears people, and Moses hears people in their homes complaining about the conditions. We don't like this. It's not going our way. As He hears what goes on in our homes as well, as we grumble and complain. God hears these things and is angered, and so is Moses. Verse 11, Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Remember the word I mentioned, the Hebrew word raha? Dealt ill, same word again. So it's the word misfortunes in verse 1, and here dealt ill in verse 11. You are distributing evil to me. You are putting evil upon me. Not good, but wrong. Now Moses was an amazing leader, unlike anyone we have ever or will ever meet, I'm certain. But after this gut-wrenching prayer, we're left longing for a better advocate, aren't we? Notice where he takes this. Moses says to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? What we're seeing here is a leader who has realized that he cannot bear the burden of the people that God has called him to lead. It's just too much. It's raw, honest complaint. Moses does not display robust faith here, but let's admit that we cannot understand the difficulty of his job either. He gets pretty testy in this complaint. Verse 12. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? As he's saying, these are your children, not mine. You gave birth to this nation, not me. I didn't sign up for this. Sanitizing memories probably going on. I was pretty happy as a shepherd in Midian. Why did you pull me into this? These are your people. This is your deal. This is your idea. Where, as he thinks of the food, verse 13, and I to get meat to give to all this people, for they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. So to summarize, verse 14, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. It's too hard, Lord. I can't do it. I suspect there are very few pastors in this world who've not come to that point in their ministries. I can't do this. I can't carry these people. There may be a higher percentage who have not, but I suspect that many, many parents, many mates, many children and church members have come to the same point. I can't do this. I can't bear this weight anymore. It's just too much for me. I've had it. I don't know how to solve these problems. I love this child. I love my husband. I love my wife. I love my parents. I love that church member. But I can't do this anymore. Just shoot me now. Is what Moses says essentially in verse 15. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. 
If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Ra. Dealt ill, misfortunes, verse 1. Dealt ill, verse 11. Wretchedness, verse 15. All the same, same Hebrew word. The opposite of tov, good. You've done bad. Just shoot me. I'm done. Oh, we could stop for a long time right here and think about this complaint, what it reveals in the humanity of Moses, the honesty of it, the way that God deals with it and does not deal with it is a fascinating study all in its own. But we have to limit our thoughts here to just say that Moses was an amazing leader, but we certainly want to see a different intercessor. Positioned to intercede for Israel, Moses mostly pleads his own case in a fundamentally self-centered and weak manner. But we can rejoice that the one to whom Moses pointed, the great leader of the people of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we read in Hebrews 7.25, lives to make intercession for us. And in his intercession there is no self-pity. There is no weakness. There is no sin. But one who intercedes for us as His people, presenting us before the Lord. Our mediator first bore the wrath of God to free us from sin and give us the gift of eternal life. And now, praise God, brother and sister in Christ, He intercedes for you when you say, I can't do this. The burden is too hard. It's too great. It's above me. There is one who prays for you. Mom, dad, son, daughter, brother in Christ in the church, sister in Christ in the church, He prays for you. He prays that we will endure. He prays that our faith will remain. He prays interceding as Moses failed to do here. Now, Moses is going to get the help he needs. And Israel is going to get the meat they crave. The problem is is that God will provide what they demand while sending leanness to their souls, at least to Israel. God never indulges His people, but we learn here that He may give us everything we want such that we cease to want anything that we have. This is going to particularly play out with Israel. For Moses, it's more a matter of attitude. He needed help. He just did not go about securing it in the most God-honoring way. But it is certainly authentic. As he pours out his soul and says, I'm at the end of my resources. I can't take this anymore. And God, we see, intervenes. So thirdly, and through the length of this text, nearly the length of this text, God provides for His complaining people. First of all, God promises to provide elders to serve alongside of Moses. Verse 16. So Moses' complaint now, here's God's promise to answer. Verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men, of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, 
and I will take some of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Moses realizes it's not good for man to be alone. And God graciously provides. Other elders had been previously elected to serve with Moses in varying capacities, such as Exodus chapter 18, where his father-in-law suggested this. So these aren't the first individuals to help him in any way. However, the 70 elders here seem to have a more pastoral function, more of a shepherding function with the people to work on the attitude, the spirit, to draw them to God and to think on His ways. There is a a, a spirit, we'll we'll get to that as he uh, uh, delivers this promise, but this spirit that will come upon them is a spirit to so lead alongside of Moses. We notice in verses 18 to 23, God promises to provide meat for Israel to eat. So Moses' complaint, I'll satisfy. I will provide, says God. Now Israel's complaint, here's God's promise, verse 18. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day. That's great news. Or two days. Better. Or five days. Or ten days. Or twenty days. What wonderful news. But a whole month. Until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome. you why because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying why did we come out of Egypt the problem I don't think is that they lack meat in other words I don't think that itself is the problem that God has it's this you've rejected me and you want to go back to Egypt. God informs Moses who will tell the people that God's provision of meat will be both grace and discipline. He will give them what they want, and they will find that they want nothing that they have. He will give them the desires of their heart, and He will send leanness to their souls. It was not evil, again, to ask for meat. It's how Israel asks. That's the problem. It's the solution that Israel suggests that's the problem. Her asking revealed idolatrous cravings and a distrust in the goodness of God. How is it possible for her to say, it was better for us in Egypt? Better how? For the moment the fish is going down your gullet. That's it. But that's what they're saying. It was better. Now here again, this, these words that keep playing through. A Hebrew word, tov, good. It was good in Egypt. Those were good times. That's where it was better than here under God's watch. How could she complain? Why did we come out of Egypt? Why did we come out of Egypt? For her good, 
for God's glory. But in the face of God's deliverance from Egypt, the Israelites listen to those who suggest a return there when they should be praying reverently and earnestly for God's provision. Psalm 107 has the key. Verse 4. Some wandered in desert, desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And think of this as a description of Israel. They wandered in desert wastes, hungry and thirsty. Verse 6, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distresses. From their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. This was their hope. This was where it was at. Not to pretend they didn't need meat as such, but to go to God in reverence, in fear, and throw themselves at His mercy. Not say, we like it better in Egypt. It was a rejection of the Lord. We might ask the question here, somewhat honestly, is God just being petty? Is He being vindictive? Is He being a bully? Of course not, but let us say this, God is being very real and in the moment. He's hearing their complaint and He's mixing it up with them. He's not on some pedestal up there where He can't really think through the matter and doesn't even understand what it means to be hungry. He's interacting with them in a very real way, really there in the midst confronting her complaining spirit and idolatrous lust. I'll give you food, and I'll make you loathe it. Verse 21, But Moses said, The people among whom I am, whom I am number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. He doesn't believe his ears. Wait a minute, this many people for a month till they've got so much they can't stand it? Where's that going to come from? Verse 22, shall the flocks and herds be slaughtered for them? Should we, should we kill all the animals that are coming with us to accomplish that? Would that even be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them? And would that be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? That's exactly what Moses is suggesting. That God couldn't pull this off. Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Is the Lord's hand shortened? Sinful, selfish, God-doubting hearts are always mired in irrationality. They broker in irrationality. God has unleashed ten miraculous plagues on Egypt. He has split the Red Sea. He has provided manna for what might be two million people for over a year every single day. And Moses says, how are you going to produce meat? He's tracking here with those in John 6. Do another miracle, Jesus. How are you going to feed these people? 
Well, he's seen how God can feed these people, but he doubts. It's a very dark scene. There's one darker yet to come for Moses, but this is pretty bad. And it's really a dark scene when we doubt God and so complain and so say in the circumstances of life, you cannot fix this. All I want is to go back to where I was. God, you've brought me to a place that you can't fix. And over this scene, as we are complaining in our mind, we might be driving down the road in the car, washing dishes at the sink, waiting to fall asleep at night, and we play this message in our head, God, you can't do it. And over that complaint is the shadow of a crucified Savior who has risen from the dead and given life to His people and is taking us to His eternal home and we tell Him His arm is too short. Too short for my life. Too short for my situation. You can't fix this. I just want to go back to where I was. As the text unfolds, we have promise one fulfilled. Verse 24, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. They did not continue doing it. So the spirit, a unique spiritual empowerment, to represent God in the service of His people, Moses doesn't split that empowerment up with them. That's not the idea. That's not the meaning. The point is that they are endued with God's Spirit just like Moses was. And the confirming evidence is what? They prophesied. We don't know what that looked like. Maybe something like tongues in Acts chapter 2. But in any event, it was a clear manifestation that the Spirit's work is now uniquely upon these individuals to help Moses And that was the end of it. They didn't keep prophesying. That wasn't their new mission. It simply confirmed who they were. Once confirmed, the prophecy that is speaking God's words by way of revelation to His people was not now their ongoing ministry. For unknown reasons, two of their company missed the proceedings at the tabernacle. And we pick up their situation in verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, not at the tabernacle. It means in the region of the camp, not in the center where the tabernacle is. One man named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them as well. They were among those registered, but they, that is, they were chosen among the 70, but they had not gone out to the tent, that is, out into the region of the tent in the center of the camp. And so they prophesied in the camp. That's troubling to a young man. And that young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, it was troubling to him, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them all. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So Joshua apparently believes that he's defending Moses' leadership, that he's defending the holiness of God and his people. He's a zealous, faithful man, but 
Moses here proves to be the more mature man. And he is filled with the share of pow- to share power with these men. Moses is happy to share whatever fame these men gained among God's people. And the key is that God was using them for His glory. That's all that mattered. And I think there's a pointing here away in some sense from the economy of the tabernacle to a future day when God's Spirit resting upon His people will be great news. The evidence that Moses' desire for help was not motivated by a lack of faith or idolatrous lust at its very core, rather by an earnest desire to serve God's people seems to be indicated here as he has given these individuals with no discipline or punishment. They are indeed a help, but again, it points forward. Joel 2, it came to pass, and it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Speaking of the new covenant that was to come, a new way in which God would work with His people, ultimately through Christ, I think ultimately yet to be finally fulfilled, but in Christ's inaugurating work, this new covenant relationship where God's Spirit rests on all of His people, indwells all of His people, and enables them to see life from His perspective, not merely to follow their leaders but to follow Christ Himself, and certainly their leaders in conjunction. But Holy Spirit indwelling, the ultimate antidote for a complaining spirit. And where there is genuine faith in Christ, there is this indwelling of the Spirit who is not at home, not comfortable with a grumbling, complaining heart. Where the Spirit of the Lord is in the lives of His people, we as a Christian church, there is joy, there is rejoicing, not grumbling. We see the future dots leading to this day of Christ's kingdom among His people. The second promise is now fulfilled as God dumps quail on the Israelite camp. Verse 31 Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, about two cubits above the ground. A lot of different pictures of quail. I don't know a whole lot about them. But there's one anyway. Something like this, this fat little bird. And they, which means meaty little bird, they were migrating northward at this time, and with wind from God, he brought them and basically smashed them down around the outside of the camp. And it was a massive setting, a massive platform. It says that they were two cubits, about three feet above the ground. I don't think that means they were hovering there and people caught them in nets. I think it means he dropped it like a load of snow. They just came crashing down with this wind and piled up to the point of three feet deep. He gave them what they wanted. It was kind of like, here, take it. They got your meat. 
Verse 32, the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. They went out and they gathered a ton of these birds and laid them out probably to be drying the meat. And that's what they were looking for, to salt them, to dry them, and to gather them. And boy, does that not look good. They had their meat. Ten homers. Now, honestly, I'm going to tell you this. I'm telling you the truth, okay? I looked for a picture of a 55-gallon drum, and I couldn't find one with a person in it to give us a sense of the size. Some of you, like, 55-gallon drum, you know that like the back of your hand. I mean, you've got that figure. Some people don't. So this is the only picture I could find, honestly. <laughs> I want to say, secondly, honestly, I was not paid to provide this picture. But it, it kind of gives you the sense of the, of, the, of the body next to a 55-gallon drum. They collected one to nearly two of these, the people who collected the least. It was a lot of birds. That cracker barrel, there's the crackers in the barrel, but kind of gives you a sense when you see those little saltine crackers there, how large this is. And I don't know how much they smashed them down or anything like that, but we're talking about a ton of birds. Everybody got as much bird as they could handle and then some. Laying them out, spreading them out to dry them. But what we read next is very ugly. Verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. And from Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to, to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. So the Lord disciplines His complaining people. Absolutely nothing would shame these people. They refused to repent of their rebellion. They stuffed their mouths with quail, chewing their idols. God's just judgment falls upon them. They'd lost all focus upon the promised land ahead. They'd given their hearts away to sensual pleasure. A loving God could permit none of this or they would self-destruct. And so it became known as the graves of craving. A reminder of Israel's sin, a reminder of God's discipline. I think we get this passage. I see myself in Israel wanting quail. Happy about it as I'm eating it. Complaining about what was Because by nature, every one of us loves it when the road of life opens up gently before our eyes. That's how we like it. We love to encounter no difficulties on life's path. We kind of like those difficulties we can solve and problem solving. But we don't like the ones where we run out of gas and say, I can't do this. We're not asking for that. We don't like it. We love it when our stomachs are full, inconveniences are minor, health is strong, and troubles avoid us. Can I say the obvious here? No such world exists. Not in this waking world. It is a fantasy. It's not the real world in which we live. The road that leads home, Christian, is filled with troubles. 
like something unusual has happened to you. It's filled with troubles. God has told us this. It tracks through the wilderness. God has made no promise to deliver His people from trouble. And there are false teachers out there who will tell you something else. They'll say that's exactly why Jesus died. So that your life could be prosperous and simple and trouble free if you'll just do the right things. Including sending us money. We'll tell you everything you want to hear. You can have your best life right now. You can have a life that's free of trouble and difficulty if you'll just do what we tell you to do. When you hear that message, know that you're listening to a false prophet. God has never said that. What He says to us, Christian, is your life's going to be filled with trouble. The journey is not easy. But the key is not to sanitize your memory about what happened in the past. The key is not to escape. The key is not to run to the world. Where does that get us? The key is to focus forward on our final destiny. The filter by which we interpret every difficulty is Christ crucified, risen, and coming again and restoring this earth and restoring us in glory what he is what he has done to redeem us there's a fascinating phrase in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8 where god says i let you go hungry i allowed it i in fact we could say sovereignly ordained it that you would not have enough food in your stomach so like what kind of a god is that our god the God who knows that goodness is far more than a full stomach, I let you go hungry. Why? He says there that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I did that that you might learn to trust me when you're hurting. You'd learn to trust me in the trials and the heartaches of life. When your stomach is empty, there's a way to go at God and there's a way not to. We don't go at God by saying, you are the source of ill in my life. You are refusing to take away my pain. You are causing me trouble. I want to go back to the world. I want to live the way I want to live because you're not performing. That's not the response. The response is to come in humble trust in the fear of the Lord and say, I need you. And you know what else I need. As we looked at that in Psalm 107, that was the key, that was the answer. To know that we don't live by bread alone, but by the words and the promises of God. And then, coming to Him humbly, trusting Him, seeking Him in prayer, we lay out our case and we say, I need you, but I don't need anything that you're not providing. So fill me with what I need. Meet my need in your grace. Help me to grow, to mature, to be sanctified through the trials that I'm facing. Not, God, take it away, I want to escape, and I'll go to another idol if you don't answer. 
Where does all of this point us to this faith journey forward? All right, very brief commercial break. We need Numbers 11. We need this book. And so much of the New Testament draws from its power. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't work for food that perishes. I have no doubt that at least the concept of Israel in the wilderness is driving the words that he's saying. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life. What is that food? That you would believe in me. Verse 30, So they said to him, What signs do you do that we may see and believe? They'd seen plenty of them. But notice what they say. They're tracking with him. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, yes, he did. And I'm telling you this. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Of course, it was my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. He says, you're looking at him. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now think of that complaining Christian. When Jesus reveals himself to us this way, those who know me will never hunger and never thirst. And we're saying, I'm thirsting. I'm hungry. I want my circumstances changed. Life stinks. I can't endure this. And he's saying, I'm the bread of life. So the Jews, oh, do you think this is a mistake? You think John just tripped on this word happenstance? What did they do? The Jews grumbled. Now that's, that's wilderness wanderings. They grumbled because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus answered them, do not grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. I am the bread of life. Your fathers in the wilderness, they ate manna there and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one who may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Flesh. Meat. All that happened in Numbers 11, Jesus is confirming And he's saying, yes, this is how God led to show you the ultimate provision for your soul. Christ Himself. The Jews disputed, how can He say this? That His flesh, we had to eat it. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Is this speaking of communion? It's speaking of relationship? Obviously not physically, but whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There's the relationship. The eternal relationship of abiding with him. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread of the fathers, they they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He is pointing us through the experience of Israel to the true bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have eaten that bread, 
when we have entered into relationship with Christ crucified and risen, when He then has allowed us to be indwelt by His Spirit, that is no context for grumbling. That's no context for complaining. Grumbling and complaining, in fact, are small issues that really aren't the issue, and that is our communion with Christ. Where I commune with Him in joy, I take all that comes in life, and I rejoice that through it, He is sanctifying me. Through it, He is bringing me to eternity. That through these momentary afflictions, He's creating a greater glory to come. And I'll enjoy that glory in His presence as I've come to know this Christ. Lord, we thank You for these promises and how far short we fall. We come to You for Your grace for grumblers. We know that Christ has provided that grace and we trust in Him. May those who know not Christ as Savior come to lay down their grumblings and to eat the bread of life. Through Christ we pray. Amen.